911, what's the nature of your emergency? Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton. I am joined with my now very good friend, Mr. Keith Helwig. Keith, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I don't know about you guys, but Keith and I, this isn't the first time we've talked about this. We've been chatting a little bit back and forth about the Facebook censorship and just how absolutely ridiculous it is getting. And I know there are people like Candace Owens, for example, who are out there and she's actually suing Facebook censorship for this very, very thing. And Keith, you mentioned to me that you're the admin of a correctional officer Facebook group. And um, I was jokingly saying that you probably keep getting kicked off of Facebook because you're the admin to that. And I say that wholeheartedly because the more that I study this, the more research that I do. And then of course, having a platform where it literally says, please fire military, they don't want us. They don't want us to be to be shown and to be speaking our truths. And I think that very much has a lot to do with this political agenda that we're we're living in right now. So I'm glad that you're back. I'm glad that you have your account, at least for the time being. And for those of you wondering, good morning, you guys. For those of you wondering, Keith actually posted a picture of a raccoon in his backyard eating out of <laughs> eating out of a bird feeder. And that is what got his profile banned from Facebook. So that's very, very unfortunate. But you are here with us this morning. Luckily, we can go live on StreamYard, even if you don't have Facebook, which is an amazing thing. And Keith, I know so many people who can't wait to get out of law enforcement. They have that retirement date in mind and they're working towards that date. And for you, you actually reached that date and you're still in law enforcement. So can you take us through a little bit of your background, your story and um, how you got to where you are now? Sure. I started in correct. Well, actually, I went through uh, criminal justice. I went to college for criminal justice. I got out of that and I was on the hiring list for a local police department. And not to get political, but affirmative action kicked me off the list because that department had no uh, minority or female officers. So they had to give the next five positions to minorities and females. In the meantime, I'd gotten a job working in the Department of Corrections. And I, I actually liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, Believe it or not, I was always a real shy person, but that really brought it out of me once you're locked in with a group of, of 40 inmates and you have to take control. And I did that uh, for quite a few years, for probably about 15 years. And then I was offered the opportunity to attend the law enforcement academy by our local county sheriff's department. So I did that and I started working part-time as a county deputy for the sheriff's department while I was working full-time for the sheriff's department, or for the Department of Corrections, I'm sorry. So while that was happening, another small department called me and asked me if I'd be willing to work part-time for them. So I was actually working three jobs. My wife, you saw, was telling me that one of these days I'm going to go to work in the wrong uniform. And I actually did that once. I uh, was making a traffic stop, and I looked down and realized I was wearing my Department of Corrections jacket because the uniform was the same, exactly the same as the police uniform. Oh, gosh. But uh, after 25 years in the Department of Corrections, I'd had enough. I'd risen to the rank of captain. Uh, I'd worked in a medium security institution, which had approximately 2,000 inmates. And I just had enough of the politics. So they offered me a full-time position working for the county. So I quit working in corrections after 25 years. And hmm. I went to work for the county and I rose to the rank of lieutenant at the county. And I retired from the county. When I was uh, 52 years old, I retired. 
Now, everybody thinks early retirement is great. And, and it is, you know, you don't have to get up in the morning. You don't want to, you don't have to, you don't have to stress. But you need to remember that particularly when you're in corrections or police work, all your friends are still working. So I couldn't call up my friend Harry and say, hey, Harry, let's go to the shooting range because he had to work. I couldn't call Tim and say, hey, Tim, well, you know, let's do this. He had to work. So I got bored. So I went back and reapplied to the Department of Corrections and was reinstated as a captain. And I was still working. I worked for a little village. Uh, it's called Campbellsport. It had about 2,000 people. I was still working there. And I went back to work for the state. And I put in another 10 years working for the state and finally decided to retire there. So actually I retired twice. <laughs> uh, the day I retired from the state, one of the earlier departments I call, I'd worked for called me up and said, hey, we still got one of your shirts. You want to come down and work for us? Wow. So down there, and then a sergeant that I wor I'd worked with had become a police chief in one of the local communities. Uh, she called me up and offered me a job working there part-time. So now I am retired, but I'm working two part-time jobs. I, I don't know anybody, in, in all honesty, who is retired working working more than a single job. And that single job is usually a hobby, um, not a high-level career on the side. So we definitely commend you for your many, many decades of service. Good morning, everybody. Mr. Brian K. Bishop says, I'm finally the, finally the first to hit the like button, and I beat Robert A. Mitchell. Sorry to dis disappoint you, Brian, but Mr. Bob had a prior engagement this morning. Now, Keith, for, for everybody that's listening, you might not know this, but Keith has his own YouTube channel. It's cops for, uh, forward slash corrections. And so much of what I have consumed in terms of your content, Keith, you talk about, and this is kind of like the underlining message that I received from it, is you talk a lot about resilience. And I think a lot of that has to do from your career. And that's, I say underlining because I've also read your, your book, one of two of your books, and we're going to get into that later. But what do you think that it takes, especially in today's limelight of policing, for an officer to hold and maintain that resilience? Well, I think you've got to live realistically and realize that your job is not your life. You know, I I got in trouble when I was a lieutenant for the sheriff's department because a captain told me, he said, you know, Keith, uh, when you're now that you're a lieutenant, you're on duty 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and we expect you to be here when we call and all that. And I told him, you know, Mark, I really appreciate that sentiment, but you have to realize that this job isn't my life. This job pays for my life. And we need to realize that we have a life outside of our job. You know, I work two part-time jobs now, but I, I, I only put in probably 15 to 20 hours a week. So it's not that bad. And I still go watch my grandkids once a week with my wife. And my wife and I do things in the summer. I'm a, I've got a big motorcycle, so I get out and I ride that in the summer. You know, you have to, you have to do things outside of work. And you have to make friends outside of work. It's, it's easy to exclude your friendship to everybody you know at work. But there's a whole world out there that you have to explore. You can't just confine yourself to that group of people. Now, granted, when you get out and with other people, they may not understand your sense of humor. You get a pretty warped sense of humor with all the stuff you put up with. But you still have to get out there and you have to you have to socialize with people. And my last video is on stress and how you need to reduce your stress in a positive manner. And that doesn't mean falling into a whiskey bottle. You know, that doesn't mean going home and smoking a joint every night just to take the edge off. It means doing something productive. You know, like I said, my wife and I like to kayak. Uh, we ride our bicycles. We 
I go on my motorcycle. My wife is a professional artist, so she usually just take a week off and go up in the woods by herself, you know, and paint. So yeah, everybody, no matter what your profession is, you have to do something constructive to, to alleviate that stress that you feel. Uh, a study finds that the average police officer and correctional officer suffers PTSD at a greater rate than active duty military troops. Now, I'm not saying that to demean the military, but people need to realize that when you're in corrections and you're in police work for, for any length of time, you're dealing with that stress on a daily basis. You know, an example I use about uh, corrections, uh, shortly before I left, we had a 19-year-old uh, man hang himself. Now, the officers that found him were relatively young officers, and I can contrast that to the first time I had to deal with the fatality in police work. I still remember the man's name, Michael Phillips. I found him face down in a ditch with his feet all full of mud. Uh, he was obviously dead. You know, the next few times I worked there, I avoided driving that road because I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to go by that scene again. And we ended up walking through the swamp because he had a, a baby on board sticker. You know, and you're taking every step, praying that you don't step on a baby. But I didn't have to go past that every night. When well, corrections, when you work a unit. If you were housing unit 19 and the inmate in cell number 36 hung himself, every night you have to walk by that cell again. Every night you see that again in your mind. So it's, it's not easy to get away from it. Yeah, and you pointed out something incredible. Um, if anybody's ever read the book on combat, there's actually the discussion of how we're essentially demilitarizing our troops. And in turn, we're having to equip our, our police officers because of what we're seeing here in our own homeland. And I think that's something very important. And of course, you weren't trying to demean the military, but it's just the truth of what's taking place in law enforcement with having the equipment and um, just to have to face the things that you do every single day. And I'm just wondering, because I have so many clients, we talk to so many people inside the police, fire, military and families Facebook group, and just on a day to day basis and speaking to not just police officers, but any first responder, military service member, people who work in a high risk field and what you said talking about the PTSD element of things, you know, we like to call it PTSI. We most certainly believe that it's an injury and not a disorder, something that can be rectified and remedied and something that is a consequence of these professions. And I'm wondering, you talked about the things that you could do in order to start to disconnect yourself and realize that your profession is not you. And I think that there are so many people who would argue with that statement because they truly believe that they are what their profession is. And I understand and believe completely what you said, and it's so important to find that disconnection, but walk us through mentally with your experience and longevity in the field. How does one mentally find that disconnection? I found it, well, you know what? I found it just by dealing with it. Um, that's one of the things that led me to write a book was because if something traumatic would happen, I would I would write about it. I, you know, I, I was never much into journaling. It's nothing I did on a daily basis. But if I had a particularly traumatic death, or if I had a particularly traumatic scene, I, I wrote it down and I wrote my feelings about it and I got my feelings out. You know, people always say, well, when you're in corrections or when you're in police work, don't bring your work home. Well, put it bluntly, I call bullshit on that one. Because if you can't bring it home with you, you can't talk to your wife or your significant other about it, there's something wrong with your relationship. Now, that doesn't mean I had to go into all the details about, about uh, Michael Phillips laying face down in the ditch, but it does mean that I could, I could sit back and I could talk to my wife 
I could tell her that it bothered me. I could tell her different details about it, enough so that it wasn't graphic enough to, to cause her anguish, but just to let her know what I was going through. And, you know, if you're not married or if you don't have a significant other, there's absolutely nothing wrong with finding a friend that you can talk to. You know, we always did a debriefing when I was a captain. We always did a debriefing after any critical incident. I would get every officer involved up in my office, in particular after that 19-year-old young man killed himself. I made sure that every officer that was involved in that was relieved and was able to come up into my office. First, they came up as a group. We talked it over, how they felt, what they did, what they, what they were experiencing, and then... I would talk to them individually, and I felt that was my job as a captain to make sure that they knew what was going on. You know, I, I told them one of the things you're going to do is you're going to second guess yourself. You know, why didn't I check him earlier? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? We have to realize that when we're in a situation like that, we're doing everything that we can. We're doing everything that we were trained to do, and that there's really nothing we could have done. I told them there's really nothing we could have done to prevent that. So you have to get together with them, and you have to talk with them. You know, emotionally, it's a roller coaster. I, I know some of the officers came up to me six months after that happened and said, you know, Captain, I still dream about that two or three times a week. And I said, you know, that, there's, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. That just means that you're in a traumatic event and, and it's still in your mind. One of the things that really amazed me, probably about six months after I retired, I had, I don't remember my dreams. I rarely remember my dreams, but I had a very vivid dream that relived probably the most horrible moments of my career as a police officer, my career as a correction. I had a dream about a 57 year old man that died in my arms. I had, you know, dreams of car accidents, suicides, the whole works. It wasn't a nightmare. When I woke up, it was almost like a catharsis that I lived through those. I'd made it through them. You know, and it, it was a relief. And I haven't had a dream about any of them since then. It all came out in that one night, and it, it was everything. It was everything you could think of. From hmm. the time a guy tried to kill me with a lock and a sock, you know, and, uh, you know, just a lot of the things I described in my in my books. I dreamt about it that night, but I've never dreamt about it again. And to me, that was just a real, like I said, that was a catharsis for me just to, to realize, you know what, I lived through that, I made it through that, so everything's going to be okay. That perspective shift that you just described, it says a great deal about and deserving of so many accolades with your experience and, and shifting that perspective into what I survived instead of what is still haunting me. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I want to go back for a second because you said something that I think everybody needs to pay very close attention to. This is very, very important. And I have this discussion with my husband a lot. And there were times where I felt like he was this anomaly because he works in one of the worst cities in the United States. And he has seen things that most people would never experience in their career. And I've always questioned him, like, what makes you so different? You know, I, I work with so many clients who've had so many similar things happen to them and it, it impacts us all in a different way. And I've, I've always questioned him trying to understand, like, what is it about you? And we came to the realization, exactly what you just said, Keith, he comes home and he has those vivid descriptive conversations with me. And we have that debriefing in our home. And certainly our circumstances are a little bit unique. We don't have any children. It's just he and I. I grew up with five brothers. My demeanor is a little bit unique as a woman. 
Um, and I just want to, I want to know from your perspective, because there were so many times where I've heard people argue being able to do that with your spouse. And I'm in complete disagreement with that. Their excuse is that they want to protect their spouse. And I want you to just talk to us about why, because it sounds like you have an incredibly supportive wife, why it's so important for you, why it has been, was in the past and is now for you to have that debriefing session with your wife. Well, you know, if you internalize everything and you keep it inside, you're going to, you're going to have a stroke. You're going to have high blood pressure. You're going to have, you know, such internal stress that it's bound to affect your marriage or your relationship in, in a negative manner. You know, whatever you take inside has to come outside at one point or another. You can't keep it inside. Uh, am I guilty of that? Was I guilty of that in some situations? Yeah, I'm sure I was. There were, there were certain situations, particularly in a prison, you know, that if you tell the average person that, you know, geez, I just watched a man eat his arm tonight, you know, before we were able to get him out of a cell, you know, and then we strapped him down and he started biting pieces of his shoulder chewing off his shoulder. So we took care of that. Then he was biting off pieces of his tongue and spitting them at the windows of the observation cell. You know, normal people don't deal with that. You don't you don't think anything about that, that people are going to do behaviors like that. You know, it took me about three months after I retired. Normally, when I went in for a shift, and I described this in my last video, I'd go in and the previous captain would tell me, okay, well, we got uh, two guys in observation because this guy tried to hang himself. This guy was self-mutilating. We have uh, two people in control status, one threw urine at an officer, another one tried to assault an officer, the other one assaulted a roommate. We have uh, two 24-hour deathbed vigils at a local hospital, which means you have to send two officers there for your shift. Uh, we had a fight in unit such and such. We had a fight in unit such and such. And you think, oh, it's another normal day. Well, there's nothing normal about that in any part of the world outside of prison or outside of a law enforcement setting. And it took me about three months to realize that isn't normal, you know, and mm -hmm. you just have to deal with it. Now, every one of those things that I just said are, are things that happened, you know, things that I went through. And I would, I was able to tell my wife about them. I didn't tell her in vivid detail. But I was able to tell her about them and, and just talk about it and how I felt about the situation. You know, another thing that helps me, and I, I'm not a Bible thumper. I'm not going to whack anybody across the head with the Bible, but I'm a Christian and I pray. You know, if I had a particularly horrendous situation with an individual, I would pray for that individual. And that just helped alleviate my mind as well. So... You know, as a Christian, for me, that was just something I felt necessary to do as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you talked about the, the retrospect three months after you had retired. And I'm just wondering, after having retired twice, in retrospect, with regards to your career, what are some of the things that maybe you would have done different looking back now? Looking back, you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine. He, he and I worked together as police officers quite a while. He's retired now as well. I think I probably wouldn't have promoted when I did. I, I I enjoyed my job as a captain, but it was too political. It got too mm -hmm. political. It just drove me absolutely crazy. Uh, the best time I had was when I was a sergeant. And I, I enjoyed that because I was still involved in everything. I still had everything, but I didn't have the political 
people that promote too soon, I think, are limiting themselves in their career. Now, I waited 17 before I promoted, you know, from sergeant to lieutenant. So it's not like I just did it overnight. But I wish I would have waited till I had 20 years in to do it. You know, I just, I enjoyed, that was probably the most enjoyable time of my career when I was a sergeant. Hmm. Uh, I liked being a captain because I liked being involved in everything. But I just did not like the political aspect of it. And once you get up into the higher ranks, unfortunately, you end up politics. Yeah. Uh, yes, debriefing is key. Yes, brother, being a Christian helps so, so much. So, um, Keith, I want to get into your books. I have read No Place Like Home. It is an incredible book. Um, I picked this up on Amazon and you also wrote another book called Morning Will Come. Both are available on Amazon. And I'm wondering what inspired you to write these books in the first place? Well, like I said before, I, a lot of times if something would happen at work, I would write them down. Now, the, the thing I have to point out about both those books is everything in them is based on something I've experienced. Now, in the first book, there's a hostage incident. I was never a hostage, but I did interview people who were hostages. And I've been involved in hostage situations throughout the course of my career. And then the second one is a school shooting. I've never been involved in a school shooting, but I've had a lot of active, active shooter training. Uh, what inspired me to write them? I'd written down a number of stories, and I and my wife said to somebody, you know, you should put those in a book. So I did, and one of my uh, big faults is I am a procrastinator. You know, if I, if I can do it tomorrow, I do it today. So it sat on my computer for probably eight or nine years, and my wife went on uh, an art, to an art show way up in one of the northern counties in Wisconsin. It was really a bad show, so she went kayaking. And she happened to go kayaking with a couple, and he was one of the lead writers for New Yorker Magazine. And she told him about the book that I had, and he is the complete opposite of me. He is a liberal Jewish individual. I'm a Christian conservative. But he was writing a book called Gun Guys. His name is Dan Baum, and it was about America's gun culture, and he, he collects guns. So anyways, my wife told him about my book, and he found it really, he acted he said he was really interested and asked if he could read it. So I sent him a rough draft of it. And he really liked it and he encouraged me to get it published. So I, you know, fine tuned it and I got it published. Uh, I got really lucky because uh, one of the reasons, <clears throat> one of the reasons I decided to publish the book was because I wanted people to see the reality of prisons. I wanted to see them the reality of inmates. I wanted to see them come to see the reality of officers. So everything in the book is based on truth. Everything is based on experiences that I've had. Um, uh, it had a great reception. It's so far has been read in over 11 countries, every state, every territory. Uh, I still have people buying it, uh, which is a good thing. You know, it's been five years now, so I'm still buying it. I'm not going to get rich off it, and that wasn't my intention. But what's amazing is I had a woman from Texas contact me, asking me when I worked in Texas, and I been to Texas, and she said, no, you worked here, because I know everybody in this book. I had an officer from Australia contact me and say, I know everybody in this book, New Zealand, Germany. So, you know, it just shows the uh, experiences that, that we have, whether in corrections or law enforcement, are pretty much experiences that people have worldwide. So I did that book. Uh, you read the book. Uh, can you tell me the name of the captain? Um, it's mentioned in there one time. Nope, okay. <laughs> I can't. You got me. No, I, and I did that on purpose. You know, I, I just I wanted to make him kind of a generic character. 
Okay. His name is mentioned in the book one time. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and find it now because that's going to drive me crazy. Okay. Every well, uh, The only thing that comes to mind is this: the word captain is probably mentioned over 500 times in this book. <laughs> so that's how he's mostly referenced is just captain. Yeah, well, and I did that on purpose because I wanted people to be able to kind of identify with him, you know, not just as a specific individual, but as a kind of a generic individual for a human person. And then uh, I wrote the second book. I just uh, had a lot more to say, <laughs> a lot more than I wanted to get out there and talk about. You know, That's cool. That's the, great. One of the characters in my book, even though the book is fictional, I, I, I call it fictional reality. Uh, everything in the books are true. But uh, one of the persons that I based one of the characters on just passed away uh, two weeks ago. He died of COVID. Hmm. I, I served four tours of duty in Vietnam. 23 years in the army, yeah, almost 30 years in corrections. Now he died of COVID, and his wife died two days ago. Not the same thing. So, hmm. but, um, yeah, that's too bad. Really honored that he was mentioned in the book. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, and to have it received so universally that way, where people can be contacting you and telling you, like I, I, I relate. I know people who are very similar into the the characters, so to speak, in this book. That that's an incredible thing, Keith. You are amazing. I thank you so much for your decades of service. And if anybody wants to get a hold of you directly, how can they contact you? Uh, they can contact me on Facebook. I have a, a Facebook page called Hellwig Books, and they can review the books on there. They can look the books on there. I also have just my regular Facebook page, Keith Hellway, until I post another picture of a raccoon on my bird feeder. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm not afraid to give out my email. My email is keith758 at charter.net. And uh, my books are available through Amazon. Amazon is a total ripoff. Uh, they have I make probably 80 cents out of a book that they sell for $12. So, you know, if people want to buy the books, the best place to get them, to be honest with you, is directly through me. <clears throat> I don't sell them at cover price. And, you know, shipping is only 2 or $3, so that's not a big deal. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm available. I'm, I'm pretty pretty easy dog to hunt with. You know, if people want to get in touch with me, they can uh, through Facebook or they can, they can email me if they so desire. I, I don't have a problem with that at all. Perfect. Thank you. And Thank I, you. Some I go ahead. My cops corrections page. You know, if people want to get on there, take a look at it, and see if it's something that they're interested in. Uh, I don't always discuss issues directly related to cops or corrections. Sometimes I'll talk about attitude. I'll talk about PTSD. I'll talk about you know, different subjects, different things going on. So you know, there, there's multiple outlets uh, that I'm on. Yeah. And anytime that somebody is dropping so much value and they're giving it away for free as somebody who has spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars paying for this kind of information, go ahead and at the very least check out Keith's YouTube page, cops forward slash corrections. It is, it is incredible. The, the wisdom and the knowledge, but most importantly, the experience, which if someone is sharing that with you, it is something that is truly priceless. And Keith, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing this morning with us sharing a little bit of your history and, and dropping value on our show today. I'm so honored to know you and to call you a friend. And I just thank you so much. Well, well thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. And 